Right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to uh, the latest in the, the very rich number of series that we have at the European Institute on Perspectives on Europe. This evening's guest, as you can see if you're able to read, is a relatively new minister in the French government, responsible for digital affairs, which is, uh, shall we say, the, the coming area of economic activity. I think you, you know some of Axel's uh, background, but I'll just make one or two points. Uh, she is, in fact, of Canadian origin, just sure. to confuse us. <laughs> but I tested her French just now, and it's understandable. <laughs> it's not quite the Canadian accent that um, we, we learned to fear. She is a graduate of Sciences Po, and we will not reproach her this too much, also of King's College. We don't really talk about King's College here very much. Do you know that at the time... I had I, I was studying in an LLM together with organized together with the LSE. So I actually attended classes at the LSE. See, is that a good excuse? This is what, this is how we let you off. Okay. Although the fact that you're a lawyer could be a complication as well. Oh. <laughs> anyway, what, you're going to talk to us this evening about which digital digital strategy for France and Europe in an age of disruption. Schumpeterian, I think, is the, the background to this. Yeah. It's an age of disruption for all sorts of reasons, because if you, if you look, as I did recently, at some of the data on this, something like 90% of the world's information that's been recorded has been recorded in the last year. There's a phenomenal amount changing, and we all know the, the threats and opportunities of the Internet. Therefore, it's going to be a rich area for elaboration of what becomes the new Europe, the new knowledge-based economy. We, we spout the phrase all the time, but we're not terribly sure what it means. So I'm hoping very much, Axel, that uh, the rest of the audience will join me in welcoming you and that you will enlighten us on what this all means. So thanks very much for coming. Thank you for your invitation and thank you all for coming to listen to me. Um, I don't know if... There are some of my constituents in the room. I mean, you're no longer my constituents, but I still feel a little bit at home when I come to London, and it certainly is a great pleasure to be uh, at the LSE to discuss what is probably the biggest economic challenge of our time for Europe, facing digital disruption and creating new sources of growth for our companies. The last time I crossed the channel, I was debating about the future of work in a digital age, along with uh, Andrew McAfee, uh, among others, and it could pretty much have been the future of anything, because today digital disruption is everywhere. The big questions, therefore, are do we have a plan? Can a new hope arise in Europe or will the empire strike back any such plans in case there are some geeks in the room? And what part can France and Britain hopefully play in orchestrating the return of Europe on the digital world stage? So if you indulge me with a few moments of patience, I'd like to pace through a brief and probably uh, not totally accurate history of the digital age to prove one big point. Today, 
is different. Software truly is eating up the world. Back in the 90s, when it first became fashionable to, to talk about the new economy and startups were all the rage, the main playing field were websites, hence the dot-com era. Their focus was pretty much back then on e-commerce. When the bubble did finally burst, it took a lot of investors to the cleaners and boo.com and others disappeared. But a few major players survived and bounced back. Amazon, eBay, PayPal, to quote a few, as well as Napster, lookalikes, and a small company from Mountain View with a weird name, Google, trying to compete with another survivor, Yahoo. You know the rest of the story, but there were pretty much still web-oriented companies. Then Apple came along with its iTunes store, that was in 2001, and with a very simple idea, selling songs one at a time for a dollar at a time, it actually created the internet platform business and disrupted the market of music. Then came the era of Web 2.0. Blogs and comment sections appeared everywhere. In 2005, Facebook started out in Harvard. In 2006, Twitter, then Foursquare, Pinterest, Instagram, and suddenly 2.0 wasn't only hype, it was a real thing called social networks. Some pundits saw the rise of Facebook as the end of the web. Why surf websites when you have timelines? Why send emails if you have Facebook messaging? Why do a press review if your friends are actually the ones curating what you should dig? So even the web was kind of disrupted by these new services, but it hadn't seen anything yet. In 2007, the release of the iPhone signaled another sea change, mobile internet. I was recently discussing this issue with one of the big French banks, and the CEO told me that mobile banking went from totally non-existent back in 2007 to number one means of contact between the bank and its retail customers last year. So looking back at the last 15 years, one way of seeing things is that online communications have gone from websites to social networks to mobile apps, all these technologies adding up rather than totally displacing each other. Another way of telling the same story is that what started with advertising and cultural goods Music, films, newspapers, books, even is now repeating itself. In the tourism industry, including hotels and restaurants, in the banking sector, in the health sector, and actually pretty much in any type of industry. So if there is such a thing as overhyped technologies, and there is a debate about whether tech company valuations and whether there's a new bubble around them, 
I do believe that our age will be determined by the digital transformations it will undergo. And that, over a very short lapse of time, when you compare it with the last industrial revolution. And those who will play a major part in this disruption are, at the moment, a handful of internet giants, Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple grabbed the headlines, but all told the billion-dollar startup club, it is still a pretty restricted club, and you may have noticed it, widely white, widely male, and widely American. How does this kind of disruption happen? In any business where inefficiencies exist, and friction can be reduced by a better use of technology, digital player can make a move. They are created out of genuine dissatisfaction. These are the companies which find an innovative way to supply a service to create customer value and confidence and to le leverage their knowledge of the user's needs to move up the value chain, and pull the rug from under the incumbent's feet. Think taxis, estate agents, or insurance companies. They all face this kind of disruption. Is this a bad thing? The short answer is no, not necessarily. We're not here to make a judgment out of it. I love the ease of use of our modern gizmos as much as you probably do or don't as much as you probably do do you I shop online I share thoughts with tens of thousands of my constituents via Twitter I order cabs or Chinese food from my smartphone and I love it but at the same time I cannot help but feel qualms about all these internet giants because they're not paying any taxes uh, or when they are, it is via so many fiscal loopholes because of all these big data being gathered without the full awareness of their users and not always the correct application of national or European legislation. And with all our industries facing the digital challenge on this unequal playing field and laying off workers to try and keep up, and sometimes they fail. I don't think I'm being too blunt in raising the questions, in admitting that this situation does raise some questions. I think this is the challenge of our time. Can Europe fully embrace innovation? Can Europe design the future, but by offering a different alternative path more attuned to what I would call our social and ethical values? I believe it can, and I believe it should. How? Well, first, Europe deserves a better innovation policy. Second, the Internet should be free, should 
remain free, but not deregulated. And third, Europe needs to stand proud and sit loud. It has a tech future of its own. The European Council conclusions of October 2013 stated clearly that, and I quote, a strong digital economy is vital for growth and European competitiveness in a globalized world. To this end, all efforts must be made for Europe's industry to regain momentum in digital products and services. This is Euro language. Euro speak for we need to get our act together. Europe should not only be a bunch of passive consumers of digital goods and services produced elsewhere. And how does Europe propose to do this? There's a double-sided strategy set out. What the conclusions of that council say is there's an urgent need for an integrated single digital and telecoms market benefiting consumers and companies, and as part of its growth strategy, Europe must boost digital data-driven innovation across all sectors of the economy. Once again, allow me to translate that technocratic language. It means first open up the telecoms market, telecommunication markets, you know, by private telco operators, And it means, second, that innovation should be a part of our general growth strategy, which also deals with energy imports, with R&D incentives, with skills definitions, industrials, norms and standards, etc., etc. I think both ideas are interesting, but I feel the focus should actually be more clearly set on the second part, on the innovation one, rather than the single market one. Peter Thiel, the uh, co-founder of PayPal and an angel investor in Facebook, summarized his views on launching a startup in a book called Zero to One, as opposed to policies going from one to N. On the one hand, innovation means either a technological breakthrough or a new use of technology to create a new business. Thiel sees this as the main driver for growth in the Western world during the 50s and the 60s. On the other hand, spreading internationally means going from one business to many, from one to end. This is what breaking down commercial barriers can do. This is a digital single market. This is partly what Europe was built for, a common market to allow economies of scale. But what Chell says is that even if a common market is great, and I do want to have a better digital single market, it doesn't address the issue of going from one to zero. That's not how we're going to scale up our startups. So what do we need to grow our digital economy, as they would say in the U.S.? I think the answer can be summed up by the three I's. I didn't say the five I's. I said the three I's. I'm not talking about the same I's. The three I's are infrastructure, 
investments from the financial sector and innovation, especially in our public procurement system. So first of all, let's build a European world of first world-class infrastructure. President Obama famously drew some flack when he called out to an entrepreneur saying his business needed a road and power and security and that you didn't build that, the state did. Well, this point was very valid and it still is in the, in the digital economy. Before starting your business, any business, you need sound infrastructures. It requires high-speed broadband connections, data centers for cloud computing, mobile network coverage ideally in 4G. And I understand that this forms a regular complaint from startups uh, in London, for example, which have no other choice but to use expensive and sometimes untrustworthy infrastructures. So when President Hollande was elected, France set out its own roll and rollout plan for 100 megabytes connections and the entire country will be covered by 2022 and 80% of all home will get a fiber to the home access. This is a 20 billion euro investment plan in total that is progressively year after year being implemented. Europe announced an ambitious investment plan of its own with 315 billion euros through the Juncker plan. I believe that high-speed broadband should be among the priorities so every country gains access to wealth of digital services and not only the capital cities but also more remote areas just as we're trying to do in France because I do not believe that the digital economy should grow by leaving aside some territories and some people. Mobile co coverage is just as essential. Those of you who are frequent Eurostar customers will have noted that the best reception for uh, their mobile phone for Wi-Fi connections is precisely when you're inside the channel. Is that weird? In fact, it just goes to prove that offering seamless connections on the train traveling at uh, 300 uh, kilometers uh, per hour requires quite a lot of investments. You may know that I had a tweet clash about this with SNCF, our train operator in France. And then I had them work with the telecoms providers to work out a solution. And in February, a few weeks ago, SNCF announced its new ambition to offer Wi-Fi on all trains starting in 2017. And last Thursday, Orange CEO announced his company would offer 4G coverage of all high-speed trains by 2018. So this shows that at least we're moving in the right direction and that we have a signal well, at least in France. The second eye, it's getting the money flowing. It's investments 
from the financial players. Building your startup to become a web giant, it requires more than uh, that. It requires cash and usually a lot of it. Amazon burned $4 million dollars between 1995 and 2003, just about as much as its turnover for the same periods. Burning cash isn't really always a sound metric. Either company is building huge empire or it just doesn't know where it's going. But not having enough cash to build upon a great idea can kill you. And I recently met the founders of a startup called Pedicasa, based in Montpellier in the south of France. They actually invented the R&B concept three years before the guys in San Francisco, but they couldn't have access to VCs or to banks that would have been bold enough to help them grow. And now I know that it's going to be very difficult for them. And this is a case study that unfortunately I get to meet very often in France, but also in other European countries. I've lived in London and I know quite a lot of what the city has to offer in terms of access to capital. Apparently that's just a parenthesis I'm opening, but I was told that the Tory party knows about it as well. It is uh, the most important advantage that London has over the French tech ecosystems, I believe. It's not the infrastructures, it's not the skills, it's not the social or fiscal environment, it's the access to investment. But still that market in London remains small compared to the depth of the US financial markets. To give you an idea of the scale of the issue, capital investment in France amounts to 0.3 of the national GDP, and that is six times less than in the U.S. There was a recent report published uh, in the U.K., um, given to the U.K. government, entitled The Scale-Up Report, outlining financing as one of the keys to bringing more entrepreneurial endeavors to scale. And it noted that banks were 70% more likely to reject innovative companies' loan applications here than in the U.S. So to overcome this, we need to get money flowing from all possible sources. And this is exactly what the French government is doing at the moment, diversifying the different sources of funding. Crowdfunding, for example, which now has an attractive legal framework. Public funds, as well, mustered by the Public Investment Bank, which is called the BPI. There's also a new fiscal incentive on corporate venture, where you can amortize over five years any investment in equity in a startup. And I'm personally calling up among our top executives to rally them around an industry-wide initiative to boost that corporate venture initiatives and to have more open, innovative strategies. Woo, that's my phone ringing. 
This is ridiculous. Everybody else can switch them off. <laughs> while, while this has been done, please note. I've done it. It had to, to come from me. There is a Twitter <laughs> Twitter feed there if anybody wants to use it. Sorry about that. I'm sorry I disturbed my own speech. And there's the other one somewhere that is about to ring in a What I would like to create is an alliance between larger groups, which are the big, powerful multinationals, more traditional in the industry sector, uh, but very powerful in Europe, with the startup ecosystems. I believe such an alliance could be extremely powerful internationally. But it also means that we have to work together at the European level. And if we can get our message through, the Juncker plan should also come as a booster for startups and for tech-oriented investment funds. This is what the French government is calling for. So to create a special dedicated financial tool at a pan-European level in order to fund the... Um, Uh, various ecosystems of startups in Europe. And I wish we could be sided by the British government on that, but I'm afraid at the moment, every time I turn to them, the chair is empty. Any company will tell you that the best subsidy they can hope for is purchase purchase from the state, purchase from the administrations and local authorities, purchase from other companies. And that's my third eye, innovative public procurement. When it comes to the public sector, we need modernize our we need to modernize our public procurement rules to allow pre ordering innovative products, <clears throat> helping companies to finalize their research and development with the peace of mind that comes with having a signed contract. That's a major problem for smaller companies. They have to, um, to battle to convince larger groups that they're trustworthy enough to sell them their products. Of course, ideally, we would need a small business act at the European level. But the European framework has loosened up and now all our countries need to avail themselves of these possibilities to boost innovation. And France has set itself a goal of 2% of all public procurement by 2020 to come from innovative companies. That may not sound big, 2% as a target, but if you know, really administrations, be it at the local or national levels, were to implement that target, that would make a huge difference for startups. And I'm sure all European innovators would benefit from similar ambitions being set out across the continent. So here are my three eyes to support innovation in Europe. But training your team isn't enough if you don't have a level playing field. And as all Brits know, winning isn't everything. You also need fair play. So that's, that's another point. The internet requires a level playing field. Europe has developed powerful regulatory mechanisms. In the telecom sector, for example, it is 
particularly true. These mechanisms have actually bolstered growth and served the customers well. Let me compare AT&T in the U.S. is offering a $100 a month internet access package when DSL subscriptions sell for 20 euros in France and triple play offers including fiber access go for 30 euros. So there you go. Free competition with good regulation when it works. It means cheaper prices for the consumers. Back in the 90s, the GSM standard also helped Europe take the lead, but it now lacks the in 4G. But the point remains that having a competition authority or a regulatory body can actually be good for you and for business in general. So the issue is we have telecom regulations, but little or no over-the-top regulation. Over the tops, the OTTs, the big digital platforms. The situation today is that Europe can regulate the prices and conditions of an SMS, but nothing with WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. And it sometimes sounds as if regulation was not a guarantee for free market and free competition. Europe has that strong competition policy, but it's no longer agile enough given the pace of innovation in the digital sector. It took six years of legal action to get Microsoft to unbundle Internet Explorer from its operating system. Web browsers aren't even an issue now since 95% of Europeans go to Google to search for anything. But that Google competition case, it's been going on for five years now, and no clear remedy seems to emerge. You know how Google was five years ago? Imagine how Google is going to be in five years. That pace of addressing that competition issue is too slow, given what is at stake. So my opinion is that we need a specific legal framework for Internet platforms, not to slow them down, but to ask them to be loyal in an open economic environment. This is something that needs to be addressed at the European level, although I'm ready to bring first set of measures in September to the floor of the National Assembly in France if the EU is too slow to act. I think people should be, mere, should be made aware of the changes, for example, in the terms and conditions of the Internet's major platforms. They should be offered a real choice, and so non-discriminatory access to customers must be guaranteed on search engines, on app stores, and such. Some businesses will notice a 30% drop of their internet traffic overnight because of an algorithm change need to have some way of preparing themselves. I'm not asking for no change of algorithms. That's the heart of the innovative system. I'm asking for some more transparency and loyalty in the way these algorithms are being used. President Obama recently used the P word, 
to describe Europe's concerns over Google and other US-based firms. For me, we should defend a P, but a P not for protectionist, not for the Patriot Act, a P for privacy and a P for progress. The data protection regulation currently being negotiated is an essential part of our legal system in Europe. Sanctions should be strengthened, strengthened when the European le legislation is not being respected And I think European class actions should be allowed to ensure a better protection of our citizens. The French Justice Minister and the German Interior Minister signed a joint letter to the European Commission to explain that both countries strongly feel that any use of their citizens' personal data should be scrutinized, if, even if this is use is done by a company which is set outside of the European Union. In other words, the safe harbor mechanism has to be reviewed. It is no longer acceptable to agree to a lighter set of rules for U.S. companies under FTC supervision with no European judicial oversight. By saying that, we're not being protectionist. We're just asking for an equal level playing field. We live in an age of big data and we should be wary not to forfeit too easily our rights to data protection. This year marks the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. That's a historical document that was first drafted by the Archbishop of Canterbury as a recognition of individual rights and freedoms that went on to become a cornerstone of parliamentarism and democracy, starting here in this country. So instead of having big data become big brother, I would rather have it become magna data, statistics plus freedom. One last thing, portability. That same European Council in October 2013 also mentioned a new right that citizens should be given portability for their data. It says there's also need to address the bottlenecks in accessing one's digital life from different platforms, which persist due to lack of interoperability or lack of portability of content and data. This hampers the use of digital services and competition, an open and non-discriminatory framework must therefore be put in place to ensure such interoperability and portability. In other words, when you buy some music on one application, if you no longer want to subscribe to that store, you should be able to keep the content of your music and use it on another system. That means that a truly free internet should allow you to move any kind of your data if you wish to switch from one platform to another to erase some of your data and in a general way to be the one to decide. So to sum it up, the digital era is a radically new one. In France, after the revolution, we had 
a legal answer. That was the Code Civil, the civil law. After the Industrial Revolution, we had another legal answer. That was the labor law. And with the Digital Revolution, we probably need a new legal answer, which would be a good balance between freedom and innovation on one side and protection on the other side, and that would be a law around data. This requires new rules and renewed enthusiasm to build awesome services. And this happens all the time in Silicon Valley, but also right here in Europe. Companies such as Skype, Spotify, Deezer, Sigfox for IoT gizmos, Blablacar for ride-sharing, and so many others can become world-class actors. They need us to believe in them, to go from French touch to Midas touch, that's turning bright ideas to solid gold. Incidentally, La French Tech could also work in London, the 21st district of Paris, the 20, the 20, yes, first district of Paris, as it is sometimes nicknamed. But these uh, young entrepreneurs, they need us to ensure they have a fighting chance in the world economy. And we as citizens need to make sure that this age of disruption does not become an age of regression for civil liberties or for social inequities. Sixty years ago, Rosa Parks reclaimed the right to sit anywhere on the bus, regardless of race. Today, the Google bus strikes in the Silicon Valley show us that fighting for equality is an everlasting endeavor. So we, as social-minded Europeans, need to help, maybe listen to them, but also help our American cousins understand our values, our culture, and that for technology to be a real sign of human progress, there's a need of freedom, there's a need for social justice, just as much as innovation and free trade, they should all come together. Thank you. Thank you very much, Axel, for a, a very clear exposition of uh, the ideas that lie behind your policy. I thought I'd better come up with my own three eyes for you. This was illuminating. Good. It was instructive. And it was imaginative. What more could we ask at this time of the evening? Now, what I'd like to do is have questions for just under 40 minutes because... Uh, both of us have engagements later, and so we'll finish a little bit earlier than, than uh, originally planned. I would like to start with a couple of questions, because it's my job to be an agent provocateur. <laughs> and then we'll go to the audience and uh, have uh, questions in groups of three. So my first question is an inevitable provocation on this side of the La Manche, which is people look at France and see it as inclined always to resist opening up a market, to protect 
to be the obstacle to European advances in all these sorts of areas. How do you respond to this charge? I think resistance and protection are not the same. And I like the idea, the idea that we're resistance because what I hear is in resistance is resilience. Uh, I think it's the digital economy is, go, is growing extremely fast and it's become a social and societal issue just as much as an economic one. And we can either become blind about the impact of all these changes on our lives and then on our companies or try to have a responsible and lucid approach about it and think of what we can get out of it, what the benefits can be, but how uh, we need to be careful of what the risks are as well. So it's that careful approach that the French government is taking on uh, digital questions. I don't think we're being protective when I support the French tech. I recently gave granted labels to nine cities in France, which uh, we recognize as being particularly innovative and amazingly oriented around the digital innovation. And what I realized is that the country is composed of amazing entrepreneurs who are motivated, ready to conquer the world, uh, and they don't feel there is any protectionist um, obstacles in the country uh, that uh, would prevent them to grow their business. What I'm trying to do is describe in an objective way the uh, barriers uh, for their business to expand, and these barriers are access to funding at a European level in order to have the same scale as uh, with the American or the Chinese market, um, and, um, and the fact that there's a gap between the levels of regulation applied to one sector compared with one completely non-regulated sector. And when you look at the history of antitrust regulation, it was actually created in the United States. It was actually probably used the most often in America. And the way we've used it in Europe has always been to ensure free trade and free competition. So that's free tra trade between all economic actors. But this is not free trade and free competition only between European actors. It has to be free competition between European actors and the rest of the world. By saying that, I'm not asking, just like the Chinese are, to set up quotas for the arrival of foreign products or foreign companies, not at all. I want free markets, but I want European companies not to be put in an uncomfortable position compared with some of their outsider competitors, which is what is currently happening in Europe. By saying that, I don't think France is uh, being protectionist. 
I just think France is being responsible. As they nearly said in Canada once, vive le marché libre. Uh, I remind everybody that there is a hash LSE France is the Twitter address for this, uh, this event. Anybody wants to deal with it. My, my second quick question to you is, you just hinted at China, but also India with its enormous output of software engineers is an emerging power in the d- digital economy. Do you think that old Europe, to use a Rumsfeldian expression, is losing the battle not just against the US, but the future battles to come against India and China in the digital economy. What is certain is that the, the international competition is very fierce. And you're right, uh, future competitors will probably come from areas uh, of the world that uh, in the digital economy we've not been used to look at so far. You mentioned China and India. You were right to do so. I think Africa is booming as well. And it would be interesting for European companies uh, to take part in that uh, new um, economic dynamism around the digital uh, uh, innovation in Africa. The um, Chinese model is interesting. Uh, They have a closed Internet. So it's not what uh, Europe wants, I think. I was recently talking to a person who's in charge of, uh, of promoting French films abroad, and she was telling me that now the Chinese people are no longer allowed to watch foreign movies online, and they have, they, they have quotas. So it's seven French movies every year and 20 American movies every year. Um, that's and the, did France protest? That's, that's the reality of a closed internet, not to mention uh, the, uh, the attacks on civil liberties. So that's one model that we do not want to follow. Uh, India, they have a fantastic pool of skills, but what Europe has, uh, I think, at an even larger scale, is is the training and the education systems, which uh, give European citizens a big advantage in an era where knowledge and the capacity to invent uh, around ideas is becoming the number one asset which is also why I regret that immigration policies at the moment in some countries are so blind about how important it is for Europe to appear attractive to foreign talents. In France, we're uh, this year implementing a new program. It's called the French Tech Tickets. And with these tickets, we will... uh, Select the best startuppers, entrepreneurs, developers uh, who have a project and want to come to our country. Uh, they will receive a visa for themselves, for their family members. They will be. Uh, they will have a grant. They will have a place in an incubator or accelerator and access to a one-stop shop to be helped in their daily life in France. 
Uh, I think that's the kind of policies we should be supporting. The best asset we have in Europe is our people. Agreed. Right. Three three questions from from the audience, please, and I'll take them in the order in which I see them. One up here, followed by one up there, and one there. Thank you very much. Uh, please, please say who you are and be succinct. Sure. Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Yann Edouard. I'm a master's in management here, final year. Um, I'm also a startup founder. Uh, you just said that the, the biggest problem is, uh, the biggest asset is the people. I definitely agree with you, and my co-founder and I think that in France, there is a lack of coders. So we're developing a solution for people to learn how to code very efficiently. And I read that the French government was looking for ways to implement more um, coding at schools. Uh, do you think the French government would be willing to collaborate with a, a startup like us? Um, <laughs> <laughs> And how could we get in touch with you, possibly? Thank you. Okay. Uh, and the question at the back, please. Thank you. I'm uh, Charles Delalonde. I'm in charge of uh, digital innovation for EDF Energy here in the UK. And um, here in the UK, the former Technology Strategy Board has a program that's very interesting, where basically they are matching a company with a problem along with a startup. And together, for three months, they're going to develop a proof of concept. At the end of the three months, if the large company is happy with the startup, then they have a partner and start working together. Will you implement something similar in France? And just in front, there's a person there. Hi, my name is Patricia Stumpf. Um, I came over from Paris for this talk, amongst other things. And I wanted to know, because you have access to other politicians at the European level, what are the trends you see in Europe? Are other ministers of digital affairs in line with your kind of thinking? Uh, we live in a very um, interesting political situation in Europe these days. So is this something? Could the digital strategy really encompass all of Europe, despite our political differences? Right, please have a go at answering these three yeah. and then we'll go very, to another very round. Very interesting questions. Lack of coders in France, true, um, which is why the Minister for Education recently announced that uh, coding will be introduced in the programs for um, the college, so it's like the end of primary schools, as an obligation uh, to learn. So this is uh, good, and there's a challenge for uh, the institution to be in a capacity to train enough teachers. So it's good to teach to the kids, but it's good when you have teachers who are likely to then uh, teach back. So that's something, uh, indeed, that is very important uh, to uh, the French government, in my capacity, I'm a minister in the Ministry of the Economy. What I'm trying to do is support initiatives coming from companies, startups, associations, um, teaching coding to kids outside of school. So in this sort of extra hours uh, uh, after classes or at weekends. And we've... Uh, We've uh, launched a program that is also financially uh, supportive 
of uh, the best projects selected. So you are, of course, welcome to respond to uh, that uh, program. It's um, best if you have the uh, capacity to deal with other companies or associations which would be interested to create uh, a, a joint uh, a, a joint response together with you. But I see my advisor taking out his business card ready to uh, uh, get in touch with you. We're very keen to develop these, uh, these kind of initiatives. A third answer would be, so coding at school, coding outside of school, but that's for young kids. One big challenge we faced in France is youth unemployment. And I thought one of the best ways uh, to try to address that big problem was to put young people who are who do not have any specific skills, who got out of the system, who do not have a job, uh, when on the other hand we know that there are real needs on the job market, uh, to uh, give them a short professional training recognized as being of good quality by the state, but not as part of a heavy institutional system because this is exactly what these kids rejected um, and where my aim is to see the creation of 50 what I call Fabrique du Numérique by the end of this year which should put thousands of young people in trainings with hopefully the year after thousands of young people in jobs. That's, I think, should be an efficient, quick, hopeful way to address, you know, for my part, uh, the issue of uh, youth unemployment. Um, that idea uh, of launching a problem of saying, that's my problem, fix it, is very um, startup-oriented. This is exactly how, how startup works. It's how a startup would work. It's what I want, what I, I would forget about the environment around me. I don't want to see the obstacles. All I want to know is what your problem is, and I'll try to find a way to solve it. And what larger firms have troubles doing because of the heaviness of the system, because of the number of people working in the company, because of the uh, time it takes to take a decision uh, before, of, because of heavy processes, that's exactly when a startup can be helpful. So I think that's a brilliant idea. And what I'm trying to do with the CEOs of the biggest 40 French uh, multinationals is setting out a document of the best practices that can help build up that special alliance between big groups and, and startups. And I would like to receive more information about that uh, project. What are the trends in Europe? One is that everyone will now acknowledge the fact that uh, the digital sector 
as a major component for the return of growth and job creation on the continent. And this is not something that was so widely accepted a few years ago. And the subject is growing, politically speaking, just as much as uh, there are companies becoming more and more valuable in that uh, sector. This is good news uh, to the extent that the president of the European Commission has put uh, the digital strategy at as one of the main priorities of the new uh, commission. And there are actually three commissioners almost dedicated to the subject. There's one, the German one. Germany chose to have uh, uh, its uh, representative com co commissioner uh, dedicated to, to, to a digital uh, subject, Commissioner Ottegger. There's the vice president, uh, who's the former Estonian prime minister, uh, Commissioner Ansip, who's also supervising the works, and then there's the uh, Commissioner for the Industry, which shows how important the subject has become. So good. But then another trend I see is that that commission has a strong tendency to live in an isolated world where um, they will fix an agenda and stick to it for years and years and years. So they're obsessed with the regulation of the telecom sector. And what I'm trying to say is, yes, this is important, but we're likely to miss another train if we don't jump on the train of innovation around digital startups. And I sometimes feel that what I see as number one priority for my agenda is not entirely shared by some of my counterparts in Europe. So what I'm trying to do, but with Germany, with Italy, with Spain, is to try to just reorientate the agenda, which is going to be published, the agenda for the new commission uh, in the digital sector in at the beginning of May, so it's coming soon, to say let's have an industrial vision, a strategy for our companies in the big data sector, in cybersecurity. We're good at connected devices. Why don't we put all the efforts on these sectors and try to positively uh, create the environment to have new industries emerging instead of being so focused on regulating one market which is already fragmented and very competitive. We have 130 telco operators in Europe. I think it's more time for them to concentrate and merge rather than to still fight one against each other. You know, they have four telco operators in the US, so that's where the competition needs to work a little bit harder now. Uh, and let's focus on the digital industry. So that's, I, that's what, with some of my colleagues in Brussels, I try to keep repeating. I don't feel I'm being always heard. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the, the current presidency of Latvia is pushing extremely hard on this agenda at the moment. And it's no coincidence that the, the country just to the north of Latvia has been renamed E-Estonia. <laughs> 
And I will be in Riga uh, next week, exactly to push to push that uh, agenda again. Right. I want to have e Europe. You, you e Europe. Okay, uh, we have Ooh. a large number of questions now. Uh, you were first, and the lady here was second, and then the lady behind you. Go ahead. Hello, um, my name is Stefan Goldstein. I work for a small research consultancy called the Research Information Network, which is a startup in a sense. Um, there's, a, there's another I, which, which is implicit in, in, in what Axel has said, which, which is uh, I for information. And uh, the digital revolution and digital disruption is actually meaningless uh, without the information that underpins it. Um, and I, I'm quite interested in this concept, which is often known as information literacy, which is basically equipping people with a means of actually using information in an intelligent and constructive way. And I'd like to find out that whether or to what extent in France and in Europe um, strategies towards um, enabling digital literacy are complemented by strategies towards enabling information literacy. In other words, it's not just about coding, it's not just about learning how to use Google at a very basic level, but it's, also, it's, it's teaching and enabling people as citizens, as students, as learners, as employees, to be discriminating in the use of information, to know how to sift this mass of information. Bear in mind that 95% of information is garbage. Um, to, 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 to actually interpret it uh, and, and analyze it critically. Um, so, 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 so what is actually done to advance this agenda? And I can tell you that in the UK, very little is being done. In, in, in spite of, of recent uh, efforts, I mean, there are government initiatives, there was a recent House of Lords report focused on digital skills, but, but it, it's all focused very much on, on, on the technical and technological aspects and not on how information itself is used. Okay, and the lady here? Um, my name is Maureen. I'm studying media and communication governance here at the LSE. And my question is on open data, which I know is one of the big work also for the, of the French government. And I was wondering how you see open data as being a means to foster innovation in France. One more question over here. Hello, my name is Charlotte Mendiel, and I work for an international NGO. Um, my question, Axel, was, um, you know, you started by talking about the fact that most of the key leaders in the industry were um, white American um, males, and I was wondering what could be done to make this industry more attractive to women and girls. Okay, we can answer reasonably quickly, we'll get one more round. Okay, I'll try it. Um, Again, three fascinating questions. Uh, I agree, uh, not enough is being done uh, to um, explain what it means to grow up and to work, to live in a digital environment. Um, I noted a report recently released by the Tinder uh, Foundation here in the United Kingdom. It's interesting because we lack... Um, studies and analysis in that uh, field. But again, the um, uh, approach is still very technological. I am absolutely convinced that digital tools can help fight against discrimination, can help um, favor social inclusion, but in order 
to do that, it's not enough to learn code. I agree, coding. Uh, children especially need to be uh, able to um, discrim discriminate and actually be autonomous in the digital environment. This is why the Minister of Education in France decided that uh, in including a digital uh, learning in the new programs that will start uh, to be thought from September 2016, it was important to learn how to code, but also to learn uh, how to understand Uh, the mass of information coming from the uh, internet, how to recognize uh, genuine or non-genuine information, how to recognize legal content and illicit one, how to use video games or serious games in a way that can be extremely positive. And the examples of, of such use are... Uh, Are, uh, are multiple. So what the, I like using uh, the, the term of digital citizenship and I like talking about a digital republic. Um, France is a republic. We have certain values, but we need to update these values at, uh, in the digital age and developing a digital citizenship is part of that. Uh, one example of the way I have to work on that subject is following the terrorist attacks that took place in Paris in January. Um, there was a debate about whether uh, younger people can uh, understand the impact of some words they use online, especially on social networks, And we realized that the number of, um, of expressions of hatred, of racism, and of anti-Semitism was uh, on the rise in a proportion that was uh, extremely concerning. And so that's another reason uh, why education should be at the core of any digital policies and which is also why the government is extremely mobilized to, uh, to ensure that we can give children the skills to become digital citizens. Open data, you're right, it is a priority of the government as well. France was recently uh, ranked uh, number three in the world for its open data policies after the United Kingdom, which is leading, uh, and we have close contacts with the country here on the subject, I'm convinced that it is a mean to foster innovation. I'm also convinced that we shouldn't be too naive. It's not about, you know, opening data uh, without explaining to people and to companies, especially startups, what kind of use they could make of it, because we realize that Many local authorities have very proactive open data policies, but the next step is becoming more problematic because nobody knows what to make uh, of, of it, which is why um, in the bill I'm currently uh, drafting that 
hopefully will be examined in the French Parliament uh, by the end of the year. Uh, we're not only implementing the uh, EU directive on the subject, but going further and currently reflecting on the creation of a new category of data, which is very exciting. We're just creating law. Uh, it would be called data of general interest. It's not data produced by public administration, so it, they're not public in them in itself. It's not private data in the sense that they're not personal data, so they would be commercial data uh, that, if released and open to the public, put together, gathered with other kinds of data, could have a value uh, for the general interest and could be used by startups uh, to create and foster innovation. I'll give you one example to try to illustrate what I'm saying. Um, when airline companies in the United States decided to use 10% of the commercial data uh, they were owning and put them all together in one single pool, they all realized together that they had a better vision, clearer, more precise vision of the market, and that it was in their own interest to have that, that clearer vision, but then other companies and consumers could have access to these uh, open, these data released uh, to create value out of it. So that's, uh, that's true of the housing sector. That could be true of the transport sector, uh, train in particular. So that's what we're working on at the moment. Women and girls in tech, um, they're underrepresented in France. They're underrepresented in Britain, and they're actually underrepresented in all of the Western world. And everywhere I go, I try to meet um, uh, people who are involved in this gender issue. And it is also a major problem in the United States. I think the reason is cultural, because when you look at the figures, Girls uh, in France uh, are 50% amongst the number of young people who will uh, pass a scientific baccalaureate. But then when they go on and go to uh, an engineer school, engineering school, the number drops at 30%. And then the longer uh, the studies will last in the scientific field, the uh, lower the number of girls uh, studying will be, and this is also true uh, in the job sector. So what uh, is to be done? Well, encourage any initiatives, especially taken by universities uh, and engineering schools and IT uh, trainings to uh, promote girls, but I think personally that it starts from a very early age and that uh, little girls should uh, be treated exactly in the same manner than little boys and understand that uh, some sectors are not reserved uh, for boys only. But this is a matter of concern to me because that's probably the number one sector for the future job creations and we still don't know what the um, what what the um, jobs of tomorrow will be but we know that they will be in the digital sector so uh, the fight that uh, women 
had uh, to have in the last 50 years for their right uh, for equality rights uh, could be threatened if govern governments don't do uh, anything to uh, to um, reverse that trend. So I think we need role models. We need strong women working in the IT sector to show the way. We need to talk about it. That's what I try to do at my modest level. And we, not, we need to convince teachers and girls that these jobs are fit for them just like any other jobs. Okay, thanks very much. We have time for two 30-second questions and two one-minute answers. A gentleman here was first and in the middle there with the glasses. Good evening. So a quick one. You talked about um, digital uh, citizenship. I'd like to talk about digital society as well. Um, my question is um, what is being done or what should we do to better use digital in um, addressing the challenges of societal, societal exclusion and democratic representation? I'm in the middle in the back there. And then I regret we have to stop. Hi. Uh, I'm uh, Ray Rigamonti, founder of um, an open collaboration uh, platform. Um, my question was uh, regarding language. Um, I think uh, uh, in Europe there is a, a number of countries and they each have different languages. And it seems uh, to me that uh, that's a little bit of a barrier for people in those countries to uh, create global companies that uh, compete uh, in, a, in a larger market. Uh, I'm interested in knowing if, uh, if France has considered the, the issue and, uh, and if they are taking any approaches to it. Okay. I didn't precisely understand. Sorry, could you? They, they, are they are they struggling because of language reasons? Yes. Um, for example, in my case, I'm doing a platform, and um, it's a global platform. Uh, the idea is to have uh, different people collaborate, and uh, obviously, I mean, right now, the most international language is English. So okay. I'm I'm just thinking of doing the platform in English. Um, obviously. I mean, if I had to pick a place to be, it would be probably uh, the U.S. or England. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Dernier well, réponse. 30 seconds? No, one, no, one minute. <laughs> to address the biggest societal <laughs> challenges that face these young people in the years to come. Uh, social inclusion and democratic representation. I'm, am I legitimate to address these issues? I'm, I'm asking because I'm, I'm at the Ministry of the Economy. And then I think I am because I'm the digital minister. And so my portfolio went from the digital economy to digital issues. Why is that? Because digital is everywhere. And one cannot address economic issues without having a political vision and without being persuaded that digital tools are tools and they're useless or can be dangerous without a social vision. So that's what I'm trying to defend. So social inclusion um, is um, something that can happen thanks to digital tools. Let me give you two examples at school uh, when using the uh, best apps, um, disabled children can learn at their pace, 
in a class together with their uh, friends and they have more interaction with the teacher and they're more confident and they have better chance to succeed professionally and socially. Uh, another example is um, serious games where video games can also help address some health and social uh, issues and that's when uh, digital tools used in an intelligent way uh, are great, great incentives uh, for social inclusion. But then at the same time, if nothing is done, then many people can be left on the side. And that's not only true of the older generation, uh, but then their global apprehension, I mean, it's kind of fear of uh, not being able to use uh, a computer, a smartphone, or it has to be understood. And I think it's very important to still have venues. And what I'm trying to do is in France is first identified all the various locations that offer access to computers and digital products and have what we call mediator, mediators, so people trained to accompany other people in discovering and using digital tools. It's good to have an online government. We're pushing that hard in France, but it can hurt if it doesn't come with learning how to use that tool. So that's so I've, I've, we, we're identifying all these different venues, putting them into a national network, creating a digital platform that will be there to share the best, best practices and creating a fund uh, to try to finance the best uh, innovative projects around social inclusion. That's an example, but I'm also working with many associations such as Emmaus Connect, for example, to try to, uh, to again, use the digital tools to give some hope to the uh, most excluded people in society. Democratic representation, where, you know, we have elections coming in France on Sunday, it's likely that the National Front will be the number one party in France. Um, there is a big gap between um, what people expect in their daily life and the capacity of politics to address uh, the, the, the people's concerns at the moment. And again, I think digital tools, and used, if used in a good way, can be, if not part of the answer, a part of the construction of the answer. If, um, if Parliament is organized and the voting process, for example, is organized in certain ways as to create more interaction, more uh, engagement with the whole of society and not only uh, certain elites who are well-connected, then, then maybe, maybe uh, uh, the democratic regimes uh, could um, again appear as legitimate. So it's, um, it's probably the biggest challenge we're facing in Europe at the moment. It's uh, how to uh, renew with the legitimacy of basic democratic rules. And I think digital tools can help 
in finding an answer. Language, I realized after discussing with uh, many VCs, American investors in particular, that one of the reasons why they would come to London so naturally was simply because they would speak the same language. You know, I was thinking about taxes and the labor regulations. Et no, it was for them riskier, including from a legal uh, perception, to simply trade and deal in the same language. And when you think of the words that are used in um, the digital world, most of them are English. And the French tech is a label granted by the French government to French cities and French startups, and it's an English label. So the question is, do we defend our own national language at whatever price but not uh, be understood by the rest of the world? Or do we consider that there can be one kind of common language, whatever the quality of it, uh, and then and then the aim <laughs> talking about that, the aim is 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 then to make investors but also cultures and people come and discover one owns culture and I think the way forward will be bilingualism trilingualism will be uh, mastering many languages and coding is just like a foreign language so maybe the answer is coding maybe coding is the new universal language but that being said I think the digital economy is a fantastic chance for francophone countries why is that? because If I read some figures, the French language should, could be the number one spoken language by 2050, thanks to the demographic growth in Africa. When you take that figure and you put it together with another one, which is the boom of mobile usage in Africa, well, you think of the potential Uh, for uh, the uh, development of digital um, technology innovation users in French-speaking countries. And I think it's also worth looking that way. What I'm trying to defend is that it's not because it's a digital world that there's no place for diversity. It's not because it's supposedly virtual that is that the real world. I think the strength and beauty of the internet is that it is truly international and universal and it should not be occupied by one single cultural language. All right, thank you very much for that. The word courriel may well survive then. <laughs> right. right. I'm sorry to have to frustrate those who would like to ask further questions. But I think we've had a very rich discussion this evening with uh, Axel. She's given us open access, if I can call it that, to her ideas. And Free license. Use it as you want. <laughs> and, and precision in her answers. 
So can you join me in thanking Axel Lumer once again for her? Thank you.